0: Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. So who's your one? I hope you've been able to identify that this week. And if you missed last Sunday, I hope you will jump in with us now and that you will ask yourself the question, Who's the one in my life? who doesn't know Jesus, the one that God's placed on my heart to pray for and to share the gospel with. One of the resources you'll find out on that uh, table that Steve spoke about are these bookmarks. These are just really simple prayer guides. That's what they are. There's a place for you to write down the name of the person you're going to be praying for. You could tear that tab off and put it on your refrigerator door, your bathroom mirror, the inside windshield of your car, whatever you want to do so that you keep this name in front of you. And then each day you've got Scripture as a prayer prompt to help you as you pray day by day for this one. Prayer is the great work of evangelism. Uh, Before any word is spoken, prayer uh, tills the soil, prepares the heart to receive the Word of God. Now, something that's interesting to me, I often hear people talk about the spiritual climate of New England, and when they do, they talk about it as being really, really dark, and they're right. Right? Uh, New England states are always ranked in the bottom of every list related to Christianity. Uh, A poll that was released earlier in the summer identified our area as the most post-Christian region of the nation. What that means is in terms of Christianity, New England is more like Europe than it is like Alabama. Alabama. Uh, another poll in the past year identified our area as the most unchurched region of the nation. In fact, Massachusetts and New Hampshire routinely tie for last on that list. Uh, so just for sake of comparison, what does it mean to be unchurched? This poll was looking at the number of evangelical churches in a given region. Uh, the town of Hingham, about 23,000 people, has two evangelical churches, too. By comparison, a town that my family and I lived in years ago, Pearl, Mississippi, comparable size to Hingham, has 20 Baptist churches. <laughs> Just Baptist churches. Mississippi's a weird place, you guys. But sweet tea covers a multitude of sins. So here's the deal. We, we live in this area that is post-Christian, an area that is un-Christian. And so it can be intimidating when we think about the glorious work of sharing our faith with other people. We know that the rocky soil outside is also represented in the hearts of people we work with and that we live around and the people that are in our families. And it's easy for Christians to get weak need to have a bit of anxiety. I mean, our challenge in this who's your one season is to just share our faith with one person and that may be enough to cause great panic for some of us uh, so but whether it's just one person or 1000 people it's easy for God's people to weaken at the task ahead of us when we think about how great the darkness is and how small the church is uh, how virulent the opposition is and, and, and how tiny we are. We think about all those things, and it seems like the odds are stacked against us. But I know something that the outside world does not. I'll let you in on this little secret. We have God the Holy Spirit in us. Look, You're right, the numbers don't add up. It's not a fair fight. We got them whooped. I like our chances a lot with God on our side. When I say we got them whooped, I don't mean uh, we established our own little kingdom. I mean this. We've got the power that we need to be bold and confident as we tell these beautiful people the glorious story of Jesus Christ in the hopes that they would hear and believe and turn to Jesus Christ. I really like our chances with God on our side. I think we've got all that we need for the task at hand. Uh, so we need to understand what this power is like. It's often very common that God's people would misuse the power that he gives us for this evangelism task. You know, it's, it's possible to take Holy Spirit power and to try to use it for our own agenda. We depart from what God wants, and we set our own course, and then we try to drag the Holy Spirit with us into an agenda of our own making. That's a problem. Another common fault is uh, we may not use that power at all due to doubt, sin, just blatant disobedience have this power that doesn't get used for the purpose God has given us to use it, that is also a big problem. But what happens when God's people, uh, operating God's power for God's purposes in the places that God sends us? I'll tell you what happens. The gospel is shared boldly, and lives who turn to Jesus are changed forever and ever. I put the challenge in front of us as a church for the next few weeks for us to pray For someone and to share our faith with them. And I want you to do that in the confident power of God the Holy Spirit in you. And that's our focus this morning in Acts chapter 1. My goal today is to increase your confidence, to share your faith. And I want to do that by teaching you more about the power that Jesus promises to his disciples. So I'm going to show you four characteristics of this promised power from Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 1 and going to verse 11, I want you to follow along with me in your Bible as I read. Luke writes this, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Beautiful start to an incredible uh, piece of scripture and uh, our focus this morning is on the power that Jesus promised to his disciples. So I wanna show you four characteristics of this promised power and knowing these things will give you and I greater confidence, greater boldness when it comes to sharing our faith with others. If you're taking notes, the first characteristic of this promised power is that it's trustworthy. The promised power is trustworthy. We don't have to look at it skeptically. We don't have to look at it and think, "Mm, I'm not sure this is the right idea. We can trust the power that Jesus has promised to us. So the first three verses of the book of Acts opens with this really brilliant summary of the Gospel of Luke. Luke identifies the one he's writing to, it's someone named Theophilus. There's been a lot of ink spilled over the identity of Theophilus. Maybe Theophilus is just the name for the generic reader. Maybe Theophilus was uh, a wealthy Roman or a middle-class Roman who funded the writing of this work, a benefactor who who, uh, called for a a recording of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. We don't know. At the end of the day, we just don't know who Theophilus was, but we think it was an actual person. This is a real name of a real person with some relationship to Luke. And so Luke tells the the his audience, Theophilus and the rest of us also, this is what happened. This is all that Jesus began to do and teach. So if the gospel of Luke is all that Jesus began to do and teach, then that means the book of Acts is all that Jesus continued to do and teach. But Jesus isn't the prime mover in the book of Acts, is he? He appears here in chapter 1. He has another brief appearance on a road to Emmaus. After that, we don't see Jesus a lot or hear from him a lot in the book. So how does Jesus continue to do and teach in the book of Acts? He does it through his disciples, through his church. Now, As Luke recounts these days after the resurrection, he tells Theophilus and he tells us that Jesus presented himself to his disciples with many convincing proofs. So, Luke and all the writers of the New Testament are eat up with this idea that the resurrection of Jesus was a physical, actual resurrection. He wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a mass hallucination. His body wasn't stolen, and then these stories were crafted after the fact to give power to some elite group. Uh, Jesus actually lived, actually died, and physically rose from the dead. Uh, And Luke and the writers of the New Testament and all of us understand that if the resurrection is not historical fact, then all of this is pointless. It's the centerpiece to all that we believe and all that we do. Without Christ resurrected, we have no salvation. We have no Christ. There is no God. All of this is make believe. So Luke hammers home the fact of the reality of the resurrection. Jesus showed himself with many convincing proofs, he ate with them, he taught them about the kingdom of God. This all happened over several, several days. So Luke establishes the reality of the resurrection and then he articulates this promise from Jesus for the first time in verse 4. He tells them or he tells uh, tells us that when Jesus was with his disciples, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the father's promise, which you've heard me speak about for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the holy spirit in a few days. You will be immersed. You will be swallowed up in. You will be enveloped by God, the Holy Spirit, in a few days. Now, why do the disciples believe this promise? Here's why. It came from the resurrected Christ. If you saw Jesus die and you saw the empty tomb and then you touched his wounds and you sat with him and ate with him and learn from him, you would believe what the resurrected Christ says to you. This promised power is trustworthy because of the one it comes from. Jesus has promised this power to his disciples, and so they can buy into it, and you and I can buy into it as well. What's more, you and I have more evidence of the trustworthiness of this promise than the disciples did. Although they sat face to face with Christ, look at us, we we also get to sit with Christ. And then here's what we also know. This is a promise that was made in chapter 1 and fulfilled in chapter 2. We're not waiting on this promise to come. This promise has been met. In chapter 2, God the Holy Spirit falls on his disciples, and the gospel is preached boldly and in a miraculous way in the streets of Jerusalem, and the word of God spreads throughout the whole area. So when you and I sit down and consider, Jesus has power for me. There's power for a task of sharing his name and telling others about him. We don't have to think about it with any doubt or any fear or any worry because it comes from Christ who died and rose again. And it's a promise that we see in God's word has already been fulfilled and continues to be fulfilled every time someone turns to Christ in faith. Every time someone opens their mouth to share the gospel with someone else. So the promise that Jesus gives us should give us great confidence. It's a trustworthy promise. We don't have to all of a sudden come out with all of our uh, fears and all the reasons why he shouldn't choose us. We should take this promise and run with it run, run with it because it is a trustworthy promise. A second characteristic of this promise in Acts chapter one is the promised power is God's grace. What I mean by that is that this promised power, it is a gift of God's grace. This promise doesn't come to the disciples or to us because we merit it or because we've achieved it, but because our God is a gracious God. So in verse 6, the disciples get with Jesus on this one particular occasion. Verses 6 through 11 are all one setting, one time. So verse 6, they get with Jesus and they ask him a question. They say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now, theologians have a highly technical label for this type of question. And that theological label is this. Dumb. It is a dumb question. Now, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They cannot get out of their nationalistic view of their lives. They have seen so much, and yet they still have such a narrow understanding of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. There's still this part in them that says, oh, the Messiah is here to raise the nation of Israel to prominence. And we're going to have power, but it's going to be a power to subdue our enemies, to put Israel on top and Rome underneath. Their question is a political question. It is a military question. It is not a covenant question. It's hard to fathom just how dense these disciples were. Remember our time in the Gospel of Mark over this past year? Just time and again, they get it wrong. They always get it wrong. It doesn't matter what they see, what they hear. There are so few glimpses of the disciples really understanding and grasping what Christ has called them to do and who he is. And you hear again, at this pivotal moment, this is Jesus' last moment with his disciples. They ask a dumb question, once again proving their ignorance. So uh, we are left with no possible explanation as to why Jesus continues forward with this group of disciples other than grace. It is only grace that moves the mission forward with disciples like these, and if we're being fair, disciples like these. There's so many reasons why we should not be chosen for this work but we've got to keep in front of us the reality that the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to us to make Christ known is given to us by God's grace. That shouldn't be a surprise that the God who saves us by grace would then move us by grace. We never get beyond grace, never. And so this is important for two types of people. It's important for those people who are so eat up with self-righteousness that like the disciples, we miss the mark of Jesus' mission. We make it about us, we make it about our power, our prestige, our position. Because we're so high on ourselves, we miss out on what Christ is doing. Those people need grace. If that's you this morning, you have grace from God to turn you from that sin and to turn you to the way of Jesus. And then there's others of us who are so low on ourselves. We try to disqualify ourselves by excuses and our brokenness. We sort of kick it into Eeyore mode. I'm the worst. Jesus don't want me. I could never do it. That type of thing. And look, those brothers and sisters need to know you're held by the grace of God. All of us on our best day are still broken and very messy. On our best day. We're never beyond the reach of God's grace. We need it as often as he gives it and in the fullness that he gives it. Our God is a God of compassion and kindness. And so whether we think too highly of ourselves or too low of ourselves, he moves us forward with promises made and promises fulfilled. It's a gift of grace to weak disciples like us. So that promise of power, it's trustworthy, it's grace. Third, that promised power fulfills God's agenda. This is the power necessary to do what God wants to do. Verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples in response to their dumb question, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Verse 8 is the key verse, not just in our passage, but in the entire book of Acts. Uh, if you picked up a sermon study guide last week, uh, then you may have read in there that Acts 1-8 is the key to understanding the entire book of Acts. It serves as a geographic roadmap for where the gospel goes. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And that's where all of this action on the front end takes place. They're told to wait in Jerusalem for the power from on high. So in Jerusalem, they proclaim Christ. And then from there, it goes to the countryside, to all of Judea, the region in which the city of Jerusalem sits. And from there, it goes to the neighboring region of Samaria, a place where Uh, normally people would stay out of. There was great animosity between Samaria and Judea. But the gospel goes from the city of Jerusalem to the region of Judea to the region of Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. In the book of Acts, that includes outer reaches of the Roman Empire. Beyond the book of Acts, it also includes Plymouth County, in case you're curious. Acts 1.8 sets this road map for us. and Jesus promises his disciples they're going to receive power. So he doesn't say, you'll find power within. He says, you'll receive it. And where do they get that power from? They get it from God the Holy Spirit. It is divine power. It's not power like any human has. It is power that only God has to give. It's divine power given to them. That power is the byproduct of God the Holy Spirit taking up residence in them. And that power is for a distinct purpose. What does Jesus say the purpose of this power is in verse 8? He says, you will be my witnesses. You're going to testify about me. You're going to tell. You're going to share my story. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to take up residence, give you power, and with that power, you will speak. Now, what do you think you would do with divine power? You might think, I'll be able to fly. (laughs) No more TSA. I'll just, zoom, take off in the sky and get where I want to get. You might think, oh, I, I can see through walls, or I can lift heavy objects, I can run really fast. That's the kind of divine power We're sort of caught up in this superhero world, but I want you to don't. I don't want you to miss what the divine power is used for. God, the Holy Spirit, in you is for this purpose, this monumental task of speaking the gospel. We need His power to get that done. So God has an agenda, and that agenda is the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ so that salvation can go far and wide. God is making a people for himself, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Acts 1-8 repeats this promise. You know, the promise found in Acts 1-8 is a promise that's actually really, really old. It doesn't just come on the scene with the New Testament. The promise of Acts 1-8 is this old. It is Genesis 12 old. So if you want to flip in your Bible, flip over to Genesis chapter 12. When you get to Genesis chapter 12, you're going to find a man named Abram. He's not Abraham yet, he's just Abram, the pagan. His high school diploma says Ur of the Chaldees High School. He is not a God-fearer, not a God-follower. He's not a Yahweh-searcher. He is a pagan man in a pagan land. And after the fall of man, after the, the sin of man that led to the flood, after the sin of man at the Tower of Babel, we get to this place in Genesis chapter 12 where God moves in unbelievable grace. And he calls out to this random pagan named Abram. And look at what he says, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, And then down at verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This word from the Lord to Abram actually has four promises in it. I want to show you the four promises right here on the screen. The quad promise of Genesis chapter 12. God promises a people. I'll make you into a great nation. It's laughable the moment it's said because Abram's old, his wife Sarai is old and unable to have children. But God's promises stand. I'll make you into a great nation. God promises his presence, which will come in the form of protection. I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God promises a purpose. All people on earth will be blessed through you. And then God promises a place. I'm going to take you to a land I will show you. And in verse 7, I will give that land to your descendants. Four promises to Abram. A people, a presence, God's presence, God's purpose in God's place. This same framework of a promise is found throughout Scripture. One notable notable place where this similar promise is found is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Look at the screen with me. Here is the quad promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. God promises a people. Jesus says to his disciples, you are my people. You are the ones who will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You are the ones who will receive power. You're the ones who will be my witnesses. It's you. You are my people. He promised his presence. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In this instance, the presence of of God manifests itself as power. He gives them a purpose. You will be my witnesses. This is the agenda, the work I'm setting you towards. And what is the place where this purpose will be fulfilled? To the ends of the earth. The work of Genesis 12 continues in Acts chapter 1. You're going to receive this power. You're going to I have God, the Holy Spirit, with you, your purpose, you're going to be my witness, and you're going to do that to the ends of the earth. How astounding is it that when we share the story of Christ, we're walking in a promise that is as old as Genesis chapter 12. Anytime you have a gospel conversation with someone, you're once again fulfilling the promise God made to Abram that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And how astounding is it that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in us for this work, It's supernatural power through believers that calls people to Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now, if we were to remove any one of these promises, we would have major problems. What if God has a people and they know his purpose and they know the place where they're supposed to fulfill that purpose, but they don't realize the power they have? If we think we are without power, we're not going to do the work that God has called us to do. What if God has a people, and they have his power, and they know his purpose, but they don't go to the place that God has sent them? Then we just self-destruct in our own inwardness. Errors like these happen often, but remember, we serve a God of incredible grace, and he takes his haywire disciples, and he patches them up and infuses us with supernatural atomic power to speak the gospel to the ends of the earth. This power fulfills God's agenda. So it's trustworthy power. It's a power that uh, fulfills God's agenda. It comes wrapped in grace to us. And the last characteristic I want to show you about the power of God is it has a shelf life. The power's purpose has a shelf life. This work is not a work that goes on into eternity. It has a time when it comes to a close. So the final scene that we've read this morning in our passage is really special. Verses 9 through 11 is the ascension of Jesus into heaven. After Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, he ascends. He goes up and then a cloud takes him out of their sight, out of the disciples' sight. The disciples are just standing there watching, eyes glued to the sky. And so would you, so would I. We would be utterly astounded if we were in this moment with Jesus and the disciples. And as if that weren't astounding enough, all of a sudden, two angels appear by their side. Now, normally, when angels appear, people panic. Universally true. But in this instance, I think the disciples are in so much awe, it doesn't even barely register that we've got angels next to us. They've just seen Jesus' promise power ascend and boom. Men of Galilee, why are you looking at the sky? These angels are, in my estimation, remarkably blunt. It makes me think they're from New England. Why are you looking at the sky? What are you doing here? You got a place to go and a thing to do. He told you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the power from on high. Don't sit here and just look at the clouds. Go, do what he's told you to do. And so from these angels, we learn a couple of things about the brevity of our mission, since our mission is brief, Jesus is returning one day, it means our work is urgent. We have this power to do this work, now is the time for us to be about the purposes of God. The angels told the disciples Jesus would return one day, and I just want you to take note the disciples did not say, oh, uh, you probably mean he'll come 2019 or later, so that doesn't really apply to us, we'll just live as if the return of Christ is a distant, distant reality beyond our lifetimes. No. God's people have always lived with one eye on the horizon and the other on the nations. We've always lived in the reality that the return of Christ could be at any moment. And because of that, our work is urgent. We don't have time to waste. We've got to make the most of the opportunities that God has given us, working in the power that he's given us. The second thing the angels teach us is that the success of our mission is assured. The Jesus who was just with the disciples and gave them this promise and was taken up into heaven is the Christ who is coming again. And when he comes again, he comes in victory. And so God's agenda, God's purpose is going to be fulfilled. Therefore, believers, we don't have to move forward in this work with any fear or any hesitation or any doubt as to why we're doing what we're doing. Christ is victorious. The work is urgent. Our mission is assured. And there's going to come a day when evangelism is no more. Evangelism will give way to worship, and we will begin our eternity with Christ together. The power's purpose has a shelf life. Today is the day to share the words of Christ. So the book of Acts opens with this beautiful promise to us. And that promise has all these different facets to us. To it, it's trustworthy. It comes in grace. It fulfills God's agenda. It has a shelf life, meaning we've got to get to work. And if it's okay with you, I want to invoke uh, some special powers I have, and I want to do a little future telling. I want to tell you what the future looks like for God's people. We've got this grand work, a hard work, a scary work ahead of us. How do we know we're going to be okay? How do we know we're going to get through this and we're going to be successful in the power that God gives? Let me take you to the future all the way to Revelation chapter 7. And I want you to see what John describes. After this, I looked And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Let me ask you a question about this future scene. Does God have a people in this scene? And the answer is yes, a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, language, which no one could number. Uh, Where is the presence of God in this scene? Hey, there it is. They're standing before the Lamb. Do these people who are in the presence of God have a purpose? Yeah, you bet they do. What's their purpose? Their purpose, in verse 10, they cry out in a loud voice. In verse 11, they worship. And what's the place where all this takes place? It's before the throne, around the throne. Once again, here's this quad promise. Starts with Abraham, given to the church, carried out in eternity. God's people in God's presence, fulfilling God's purpose in God's place. So let us work today, brothers and sisters, to fill that heavenly choir tomorrow. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we are grateful. For Your grace to us, the grace that saves and the grace that calls. it is hard for us to fathom this idea that God the Holy Spirit, dwells in his children. It's hard for us to understand just what that power is like, the power that spoke everything into creation out of nothing, the power that sustains every atom in the universe, the power that knows us by name and counts every hair on our heads, that power is in us for this beautiful purpose of evangelism. Convince us of its might. Convince us of your might. Convince us of your power in us for this task that we would tell the story of Jesus Christ boldly, that we would tell it wide, we would tell it urgently, until the day we hear the trump sound, the sky split open, and Christ returns for his bride. Use us to fill that heavenly choir, that you would be praised and glorified for all time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.